Ezekiel 20. We will be looking into Ezekiel 20 and 21. Matt, maybe it's actually maybe just a little too high um, this evening. Thank you. I don't want to blow anyone's eardrums out when I get excited. Title of the message, Redemption Through Removal. Redemption Through Removal. We've been, to some degree or another, repeating themes, but there's always something to learn from the Word of God. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about the temptations of Christ in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, as well as Mark and Luke. And as we talked about these temptations in the wilderness, we had mentioned the fact that, you know, God doesn't work on our timetable. Satan had offered to Jesus Christ that if he would but bow down and worship Satan... Satan would give Christ all the kingdoms of this world. Well, if Christ were to receive all the kingdoms of this world without having to go through this pain and the suffering and the agony and the, and the death, how nice would that be? Maybe he could actually bypass all of that suffering and receive the kingdoms of this world another way. And we, among other topics, as we spoke of this this morning, we talked about the fact that sometimes we can feel like God's way maybe isn't the best way. And maybe our way makes more sense. And maybe we should just do it our way instead of God's way. And that was the temptation, a part of the temptation. Was Jesus Christ uh, preempting the will of God uh, going around God's will in order to f fulfill His will His way. And as we look in Ezekiel 20 and 21 this evening, we're going to see God's plan for Israel's redemption. And one of the integral parts of God's plan for Israel's redemption was removal from the land. They had defiled themselves. They had been wicked before God. And so a part of God's plan to bless them was to curse them. A part of God's plan to bless them was to remove them. And that can be something that's a little bit difficult for us to understand sometimes. That sometimes God's plan for us to bring us to where we need to be goes through times of pain and sorrow and difficulty. Sometimes the only way for God to turn us into that beautiful gold that He wants us to be is to burn off the dross, is to bring us to the end of ourselves, is to remove from us those things that we are using as a crutch those things that have blinded us from our ability to serve Him. And so this evening we're looking at a story of redemption. And it's not going to be a pretty story until we think about the end. See, because the, the end is beautiful. The end will be beautiful. 
But for the time being and throughout much of Israel's history, it's very difficult to swallow. As we step into Ezekiel 20 this evening, we find ourselves at a new date marker. Ezekiel 20 verse 1 tells us, And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Now, this prophecy is 11 months after the previous date given. This prophecy begins 11 months after the previous set of prophecies began. It is indeed in the seventh year after King Jehoiachin's captivity, in the fifth month, in the eleventh day of the month. Now, this does not necessarily mean it has been 11 months since Ezekiel's last message. It's just been 11 months since he received his last revelation. So this, he, he gave a revelation last time. He gave several revelations last time. And we don't necessarily know how long those revelations spanned in that 11 months. Maybe it was the entire 11 months that he was calling out, crying out these previous revelations as we think about everything that he had talked about before with the eagles and the lions and the whelps and that um, tremendous passage in between, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And as we think about all of those revelations, um, it's not necessarily that Ezekiel has been silent for the last 11 months, um, but that this revelation is indeed coming 11 months after his last revelation. Now, Ezekiel has been a called prophet of God for two years and one month at this point. And what an eventful two years those have been. We do recall that it was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity that Ezekiel began his ministry. Now it's the seventh year. So two years and one month has transpired. Think of all that Ezekiel has gone through in those two years. Think of all the things that have happened. And it's important that we keep this in mind because in some ways Ezekiel's prophecies in the first main section of this book, which is chapters 3 through 24, are rather repetitive. God is continually calling His people back to Himself. God is continually condemning the rebellion of Israel. God is continually warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's happening over and over and over again. But we must recall that these prophecies from chapter 3 to chapter 24 will be given over a seven-year span. So it's, it's kind of different from what, how I'm giving it to you. You're hearing these prophecies every week, and every week there's two new chapters. Um, in, in a span of a month, we might go through two years' worth of Ezekiel's time. Uh, there is a great uh, difference in the timing here. So these people are hearing these prophecies, but it's not necessarily hitting them the same way it might hit you. We are digging into the middle days of Ezekiel's warnings of judgment now. Two years into his seven-year message. And there's still plenty to learn. Now we're going to spend the next two Sundays looking into the prophecies of the seventh year and the fifth month, this particular time. And once we finish these two sermons, the messages of Ezekiel are going to transition away from warnings to Israel and they're going to focus on the judgment of the heathen nations round about her. And when we see that transition, it will become quite clear to us. Now if you find your head swimming a little bit, Seventh year, fifth year, what month were we on again? Um, I encourage you to look at your outline that I gave you. I've delineated it as clearly as, as I can. 
um, without giving you a timeline. I've delineated it fairly clearly when each prophecy begins, uh, when, according to each passage, things are happening. And then you'll notice uh, a couple weeks down the road, the prophecies are going to start going out of order. Um, the sixth prophecy, as far as time is concerned, is going to be given before the fifth prophecy. And so there, things are going to start getting out of order. Those are labeled for you. And I encourage you to keep that nearby so that you can keep your mind wrapped around when all this stuff is happening. Now, in Ezekiel 20, we mentioned the elders have just come to inquire of the Lord. They sat before Ezekiel. Verse 2 says, Then came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. So we open the revelation of Ezekiel 20 to a familiar scene. The elders of Israel have come to inquire of Ezekiel. You might recall this happened way back in Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14 verse 1 and then verse 3. Scriptures tell us, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And God's response was, Should I be inquired of them? Of at all, excuse me, by them? Very, very familiar to what we're seeing here tonight. And to this inquiry, uh, this is what God said. Should I be inquired of them? Why should I listen to them when they don't listen to me? Why should I give them my words when all they're going to do is disregard my words anyway? So God asks Ezekiel in verse 4 of this passage, Wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abominations of their fathers. It's story time for Ezekiel and the elders of Israel. I remember back in kindergarten, we'd all cross our legs on the little rugs. We'd each have our own little rug, and it would be story time. Kind of like that, except I don't probably think that they had little magic rugs that they got to sit on for story time. But it was time for Ezekiel to tell them a story. It was time for Ezekiel to recount some of the history of this nation called Israel. The old adage goes, if you don't remember history, or if you don't study history, you are destined to repeat it. The saying is very true. We're seeing it in our own country right now. If we would just study the fall of Russia to communism, if we would just study the fall of the Roman Empire, we might start seeing some parallels and it might help our nation change a little bit. But um, regardless, it hasn't because people don't. And this is the exact same thing that Ezekiel is going to do tonight. He's going to say, let's look at history a little bit, Israel. Let's look at history and let's see exactly how you have been as a nation. God does this many times in Scripture. He's going to recount the early days of Israel with the intent that they would realize that they are and really always have been a rebellious nation in the face of God's love, His goodness, and His generosity. So, in verses 5 through 9, God begins with the nation in the land of Egypt. God tells them that He made Himself known to the nation. That God came through Moses and promised to bring them into the land He had promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. A land of plenty, a land of beauty. A land that God calls in verse 6, the glory of all lands. What would God's expectation be for this goodness? What would God's expectation be for God giving this nation the glory of all lands? Well... It was this, make me your God. 
Remove all other false gods from among you and make me your God and I will bless you. No problem, right? No problem. God has promised a beautiful land, the promised land, it's called, the glory of all lands, it's called, the land flowing with milk and honey, it's called, it's fertile, it's protected, it's right in the middle of everything, it's wonderful, no problem. He's going to give this to us, we're going to follow Him, we're going to obey Him. Wrong. Didn't work that way. Verse 8 tells us, but they rebelled against me. They refused to listen. They refused to remove the idols. They refused to even listen to Moses. They rebelled. So God desired to pour out His fury upon them. At that time, several hundred years prior to Ezekiel's prophecy, God says, I desired to pour out fury upon you, but I didn't. Why didn't He pour out His fury upon them? He didn't pour out His fury upon them, verse 9 says, because He had redeemed this nation. He refused to allow His name to be mocked among the other nations that had seen Him redeem them. So in His mercy, He still brought them out of the land. God then reminds them of the wilderness, the first generation in the wilderness, verses 10 through 17. He brought the people out of Egypt and He gave them the law. The key to a righteous life of blessing before God. Not only now has He shown His signs and His wonders in Egypt, not only now has He chosen them to give them this land, but now He's given them a law. He says, now I'm going to make it really easy for you. I'm going to tell you everything you need to do. Everything that you should do, everything that you shouldn't do, this is, this is for you. He says in verse 12 that He also gave them His Sabbaths. A weekly Sabbath, a yearly Sabbath, and a 50-year Sabbath all intended to be signs of faith and reliance between God and Israel. Every seventh day, you're going to rest and I'm going to provide for you and it's going to show you that you can trust me. Every seventh year, you're going to let the land rest and I'm going to provide for you and it's going to show you that you can trust me. Every 50th year, you're going to let the land rest. You are also going to let all of your indentured servants go. They have paid their dues. They have done their work. It's over, it's done, they're, they're free, and in doing so, I am going to prove to you my faithfulness. I'm going to prove to you that you can trust me. Wow, what a blessing. How tremendous. Surely now that they have been given the letter of the law regarding how they should follow God, surely now that they have this weekly, this seven-year, and this 50-year opportunity to see the goodness of the Lord, surely now... They're going to have it, right? They, they've got it. No problem. They're going to obey, right? Wrong. Didn't happen. Verse 13 says that they rebelled in the wilderness. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They despised God's law. They polluted God's Sabbaths. So God says He desired to pour His fury out upon them. But He didn't. Why? Verse 14 says, because he had redeemed this nation and he refused to allow his name to be mocked among the other nations that had seen him do it. So God, in his mercy, kept them in the wilderness and he did not destroy them. Well, now it's time for the second generation. Verses 18 through 25 describe the second generation that was in the wilderness. 
they had seen the example of their wicked parents and God had told them, don't do what they did. Don't be like your parents. He called them to obey and to observe His expectations and promised them blessing for doing it. Well, surely this generation, right? They had seen all of the trouble that, that the parents had gotten into through rebellion. They had seen the consequences of their parents' sin. They had seen their parents' hard-heartedness and stubbornness. Surely they would obey, right? Wrong. They didn't. Verse 21 says, Notwithstanding the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They rebelled against God. They polluted His Sabbaths. God desired to pour out His fury upon this second generation, but He didn't. Why? Verse 22 tells us, He had redeemed this nation and He refused to allow His name to be mocked among the other nations that had seen Him do it. So God, in His mercy, kept them in the wilderness, but He did not destroy them. God continues in verses 27 through 32 speaking about Israel's behavior in the land which he calls the glory of all the earth. So they finally made it into the land. They had finally done enough to get into the land of, of Israel, into the land of Canaan. Surely, they now see this land flowing with milk and honey. Surely, God has driven the inhabitants of the land out before them. They've seen His goodness. They've seen His power. They've seen His wonder. They've seen His glory. Now, surely they will obey, right? Wrong. They didn't obey. Verse 28 says they saw every element of the land as an opportunity to worship false gods. What a beautiful tree God made. Let's turn it into an idol. What a beautiful mountain that is. Let's build an altar to Baal. What a beautiful valley. Let's sacrifice our children to false gods. Everything they saw. Let's worship false gods. Let's make a false god. Let's rebel against our God. Verse 31 says they used the land to kill their children and to pollute the nation with innocent blood. But God promised at this time that though He gave them the land, the day had come or would come when He would scatter them around the world as consequences of their rebellion against Him. God says, I, I, it, the time has come, men of Ezekiel's day, for me to scatter you. The time has come for all of the promises of the cursings that I promised, not just the plagues and the pestilence and the famine and the wars and the being subservient to the nations around you. None of that. You didn't listen to any of that. Now it's time for you to be dispersed for your sin. Because you wouldn't listen. Because you wouldn't obey. Because you're a rebellious people. This promise was given to them in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30. God promised them that they would see both the blessings of God and the cursings of God in their history, but that all of it was directed toward a specific goal. That this physical nation of people would become God's people. And He has always desired, and as He has always promised to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they would be redeemed. Now, in other words, their removal 
their scattering was a step toward redemption. But removal would not be the only step toward their redemption. After this removal and scattering, God promises in verses 33 through 44 that this would be done for a purpose. He would pour out His fury upon them and that through this time He would plead with them face to face to love and to serve Him. He would regather them. He would pour out His fury upon them. He would plead with them and then He would bless them. Does any of that sound familiar? God regathering Israel, pouring out His fury upon Israel, pleading with Israel, and then blessing Israel. If that sounds familiar to you, theologically, um, it's because it's the exact events of the end times. It's because it's the exact events of the seven years of tribulation. Israel will be regathered. God will pour out His fury upon them in chastening. He will plead with them. Israel will repent, return to God, forsake their wickedness, be ashamed of their rebellion, finally obey God. God will turn to Israel. He will accept their offerings. He will redeem them. He will sanctify the nation. They will be His. This is end times prophecy. This is the entire point of the tribulation period to chasten Israel back to God. See, this is one of the primary reasons why we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. The seven years of tribulation are stated all throughout Scripture to be a time of chastening for the nation of Israel back to God. See, the church is not Israel. We know the church is not Israel. The Scriptures make it very clear that the church is not Israel. We have been grafted into the promise of Abraham, but we have not been grafted into all of the promises of Israel, nor has Israel been grafted out of all of their promises that God has promised to them. So the church is not Israel, therefore we will not inherently inherit all of the blessings that God has promised Israel physically. And as well, the church does not need chastening. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, remind us that as we stand before God, we stand before Him today unreprovable, unrebukable, unblameable in His sight. Why would we, God's church, who stand unblameable in His sight, go through a time of chastening. What does He have to chasten us for? When we are unblameable, unreprovable in His sight. See, we stand before God in Christ's righteousness. Israel does not. Israel needs to be chastened to bring them to the point where they're willing to accept Christ. You do not. You've accepted it already. Why would God put His church through chastening when we've already accepted Christ? doesn't make sense. So the church won't go through the chastening of the tribulation. That's for Israel to go through. God's fury is for the purpose of repentance, restoration, and blessing. That's what God is saying here in Ezekiel. He says, I'm going to regather you. I'm going to pour my fury upon you. But I'm not pouring my fury upon you just because I'm an angry God. I'm pouring it upon you because in doing so, not only will it fulfill my justice, but it will finally bring you back to me. I don't discipline my children just for fun. I hope none of you discipline your children just for fun. It's not fun to discipline children. It's not fun to have to give them physical punishments, physical chastening 
for their rebellion. I have twin daughters. When they go down for nap time, because they're in their playroom now, that's where they're sleeping, it's a great temptation for them to want to get up and to run around. And because of this, we have set stipulations. They put their heads on their pillows, they get under their covers, and I look at my two girls and I say, girls, these are the rules. You must stay under your blankets and you must keep your head on your pillow. If you do not keep your head on your pillow and you do not stay under your blanket, there will be consequences. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I hear it on both ends because they sleep in the same bed on either end. And then I leave and I wait and I wait about five to ten minutes and I open the door and I look to see if their heads are on their pillows and if they're under their covers. Accountability. You can't expect what you don't inspect. That's what my old boss used to tell me. You can't expect what you don't inspect. And so I go in and I inspect. And there have been times where they've both been out of bed, goofing around, and they both get consequences. Spankings, to be exact. There have been other times where I've walked in and I found one of them up and about. And the other one is being a good little girl staying on her pillow. Maybe she's extra tired that day. Maybe she doesn't want a spanking. Whatever it might be, she's not up. Now, how silly would it be for me to go in there and say, okay, the one that's standing up, here's your spanking. And then, okay, the one that's not standing up, I know you obeyed, but eh, you're going to get one too because your sister disobeyed. Here you go. And I give her a spanking. How, how terrible would that be? How inconsistent would that be? How difficult would it be for her to reconcile why she just got chastened? Because she was doing what she was told. How silly would it be for God to just chasten for no reason? To pour out His fury for no reason. There's a reason that He's going to pour out His fury on Israel. And there's a reason why He's not going to pour it out on you. The reason why He's pouring it out on Israel is because they're the one that was out of bed. If you take my meaning so. They're the one that wasn't listening they're the one that refused to accept him. They're the one that sent the, the Son of God to the cross. They're the one that needs the chastening. And they'll get it. We see this promise partially fulfilled or typified after the 70 years of captivity. Some of Israel is brought back as they go through 400 years of being conquered and being destroyed climaxing in the wicked reign of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria, and the desecration of the temple. But Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 24 that the full promises of regathering, the full promises of fury and of pleading and of blessing are still a future event. And we've seen nothing since that has anything paralleled what Jesus Christ promised in Matthew 24. So it's coming one day. It has yet to happen. In verses 45 to 49, we finally see Judah's portion in the judgment to come. These verses um, direct the particular weight of this prophecy toward the south or the southern kingdom of Judah. Everything will be devoured in the land and the flame will not be quenched, God says, until all is consumed. And this is what the next chapter will focus on specifically. As we step into Ezekiel 21, if we would theme this chapter, the theme would be this, Jehovah's sword. 
Jehovah's sword. There are several times in Scripture where we see the angel of the Lord standing with a sword in his hand. We see the angel of the Lord resisting Balaam and standing with a sword in his hand. We see the angel of the Lord stand before Joshua on the night before the siege, I guess, of Jericho. And he's standing there with armor and a sword. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemy? So we see God several times as a warrior, as a man of war. And here's another time where we see Jehovah's sword. God's got a sword and he's preparing that sword for something. In verses 1 through 7, we see that Jehovah's sword will divide the people from the land. The chapter reveals to the nation that the wheels are in motion and nothing will stop their turning. All throughout Israel's history, there have been men. There have been men who have stood in the gap. There have been men who have caused God's hand to stay from His wrath, to stay from His judgment, to stay from His chastening. But there's no one anymore. There is no one that can stand before God in the land anymore. Remember God said several chapters ago, even if Job and Noah and Daniel were standing there between me and you, they would only save themselves. The wheels are in motion. The time has come. Judgment is upon you. The first seven verses promise that Israel will indeed be scattered. The sword will divide both the righteous and the wicked from their land. Captivity is assured. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh from the south to the north. So God says, I don't care if you're righteous, I don't care if you're wicked, you are going to be removed from Jerusalem. This city will be destroyed. I'm going to scatter you, the righteous and the wicked both, those that aren't destroyed. Of course, we know that God has promised great destruction all the way back from the beginning of Ezekiel where He took His hair and He brought it into thirds and with a third of it, He um, chopped it up in the city and a third of it He burned with fire and a third of it He scattered to the winds and a little bit of it He tucked into His, into his belt and then He eventually took that part and He burned it as well, all signifying what would happen to the nation of Israel and the people in the nation. Verses 8 through 17 show God's handling this sharpened sword to, or He's handing it, excuse me, to a slayer, to the one who would be used by Jehovah God to judge Israel. Look with me at verse 11. And He hath given it to be furbished, that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened, and it is furbished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Verse 15, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that their heart may faint, and that their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright. It is wrapped up for the slaughter. So God unsheathes His sword. He hands it to a being called the slayer. Sounds pretty angry, doesn't he? And the slayer takes that sword and he points that sword right at the gates of Jerusalem. And he says, this sword's coming in. Look with me at verse 17. And I will also smite my hands together and I will cause my fury to rest, saith the Lord. So this sword is going to do its work and God says, I'm going to smite my hands together and it's going to happen and the sword will do its work and my fury will rest upon you. 
verses 18 through 27, God describes who this slayer is that receives the sword. With the sword of the Lord's judgment in the hand of Babylon, verses 18 through 27 describe their journey to accomplish God's will. Babylon is this creature, this nation, this one who has been given the sword of the Lord in order to execute judgment. Verse 20 says, They will come from the north, from the land of the Ammonite, and come against Judah. God describes how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would use divinations to determine his plans, which, through the allowance of God, would point him right toward the gates of Jerusalem. The sword of the Lord, being carried by Babylon, would come right to the very gates of the city. And notice what God tells them in verse 25. And thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. In the Hebrew language, there is only one way to show emphasis. Hebrew does not have emphatic words. Hebrew does not have a means by which the word changes to make a greater emphasis on the word. The only way Hebrew can emphasize is through repetition. And three is the pinnacle of repetition. As Isaiah stood before this vision of the Lord and the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Three holies, the absolute highest ranking of holy in the repetition of three. Here God says, I will overturn, I will overturn, I will overturn you. You will be overturned. And He says, woe unto this prince of Israel. That would be King Zedekiah at this time. Says you're gonna the crown's gonna come off of your head. I'm gonna overturn you. I'm gonna overturn your land, and that crown won't find a head again until the one who's right it is. Who is this one who's right it is? We find out the one who's right it is to rule in Israel in Daniel chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. Daniel sees a vision and he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him and there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The one whose right to rule is the one described here. What about Revelation chapter 5, verse 12? This passage says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the one whose right it is to rule in Israel. The promise of God in the face of Jerusalem's destruction at the hand of Babylon is this. The crown will not again be seen in the nation of Israel until the day that that heir of David, that one called Messiah, claims the divine right to wear it. 
And so we have seen that from the captivity of Israel into Babylon until this very day, there has never again been a king on the throne in Jerusalem. There has never again been one with the right to wear that crown. And there will not be one with the right to wear that crown until the promises of God, the regathering, the chastening, the pleading, and the repentance of Israel come to pass. And on that day, a day which we as Christ's church eagerly anticipate, on that day, Jesus Christ will ascend to the throne of His Father David. Jesus Christ, the One whose right it is, will rule. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Verses 28-32 through 32 tell us that in this great destruction, following the destruction of Israel, Ammon too will be destroyed. They will fall in Israel's judgment. They will be a casualty of this judgment of Israel. They will fall by the sword of Jehovah through Babylon as it makes its way to the gates. They will fall as well. Now throughout this teaching, there have been moments of opportunity for the Holy Spirit to apply the Word of God to our hearts. But let's bring some of these applications together as we close. The first application that I'd like to encourage you to take with you this evening, number one, Never mistake God's long-suffering for God's apathy. Never mistake God's long-suffering for God's apathy. See, Israel made a big mistake. They confused the long-suffering of God and the apathy of God. The apathy, apathy is a word that means um, carelessness or that you really don't care about something. See, billions in this world are making the same mistake that Israel made for thousands of years. These people feel like because they do evil things and God doesn't strike them dead, that God must not care. This is wrong. This is dead wrong. God cares. The Scriptures tell us God loves righteousness, that God hates wickedness, that He's watching and that He knows. And as we look at the world around us, the message to unbelievers is this. No unbeliever is getting away with anything. They've simply been given time to repent. There's a huge difference. See, God is sitting on the throne in mercy. We talked last week about the only reason why God has not yet returned. The only reason why you and I are still here preparing to go out and to tell the gospel to those in our neighborhoods and those in our community. The only reason why we're still here, the only reason why God's not on the throne right now is because He is waiting for more people to believe. He is waiting for hearts willing to receive, to receive. We must not allow ourselves to leave here and be convinced that God doesn't care. If you are an unbeliever in this room this evening, you must not allow yourself to think that you can deal with your unbelief tomorrow because there may not be a tomorrow. The Lord may return tonight. You may die tonight. There may not be a tomorrow. And what that means for you is that you may not have a tomorrow to think about 
this concept. You may not have a tomorrow to consider whether or not God actually cares. Or He doesn't care and it doesn't really matter. So here's the problem. We're all sinners. We are therefore, by our sin, on our way to a place of eternal judgment as the just punishment for that sin. This place is known as the lake of fire, a place where the wrath of God will burn for eternity. There's nothing we can do to pay our debt. Our, bet, our debt is too big and we are too wicked. But there's a solution. God paid your debt through Christ. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the cup of God's wrath, to take upon Himself the wrath, the anger that God had for you. For your sin. Jesus Christ bore it in His body on the cross. And then as He died, He was put into a grave and He rose again the third day in victory over the grave, securing for you the opportunity to be saved. And as He rose from the dead in victory over the grave, so too He has secured for us the opportunity to rise in victory over the grave. But the Scriptures tell us we have to do something first. What do you mean do something, Pastor? Well, it's not really doing anything. It's accepting something. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He bought your debt. He paid your debt. And He holds that out and He says, I have paid the penalty. It's my gift to you. But you have to accept that gift. You have to take that gift. And the Scriptures say that we accept that gift through belief. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, we all know it, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, should not die, but have everlasting life. Salvation by grace through faith in what Jesus did and in who He was, what the Bible tells us. He is. To believers this evening, you are under grace. Isn't that beautiful? For by grace are you saved through faith. But don't forget that the fires of God's judgment will indeed affect you as well. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that our works will be subject to the fires of God's judgment. Hebrews 10 warns us that those believers who despise God's grace should expect fiery judgment and indignation. Now your soul will be saved from eternal judgment, but that day of the Lord will be a day of reckoning. And far be it from us to mistake God's long-suffering for God's apathy. Okay, so you've been sinning. You've gotten away with it. You haven't really faced any physical consequences for that sin that you've had in your life. God must not care. God must not see. No. Perhaps God is showing you mercy. Perhaps God is showing you mercy. So never mistake God's long-suffering for God's apathy. Second, never assume upon God's methods of divine chastening. Israel was in a place where they began to weigh the cost-benefit ratio of their sin and determined that the benefit of their sin was greater than the perceived cost of chastening. See, this is because they had absolutely no clue what God had in mind for their chastening. God had told them what their chastening would be, but they didn't understand it. They didn't grasp it, or they didn't process it properly. 
They assumed upon the severity of God's anger and judgment, and for their assumptions they are awaiting seven years of terror, unlike anything they've ever experienced before in the coming tribulation. My girls do this. Perhaps you do this as well. I look at one of my girls and I tell them to do something. And as soon as I tell them to do something, immediately their gears start turning. You can see it. I mean, you can see it. It's in their eyes. They stop. They think. They're staring off into the distance. Is what I was just told to do worth doing? Or can I roll the dice and assume that maybe my parents won't discipline me this time and I can get away with disobedience? Is touching that when I've been told ten times not to touch it, if when I do it, or if I do it, is it going to be worthy of the possibility of getting a spanking? How are the parents looking today? Are they in an angry mood? Am I, are they going to follow through with their discipline? Or are they just going to look at me and once again tell me not to do what they've already told me not to do a hundred times before? And I know not to do it, but I'm weighing these consequences in my mind. My girls do that. Israel was doing that too. Remember these proverbs that have ceased in Israel? The proverb that says God doesn't care? The proverb that says the children are, are receiving the consequences of the parents' sin? That the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set at edge? And he said, I'm going to cause these proverbs to cease out of Israel. You won't have an excuse anymore. Nor do we. Don't play that game with God. First, because God will always win. Second, because rebellion may bring about a temporary satisfaction, but it pales in comparison to the joys and the blessings of obedience. We don't live this life under grace. Hiding under rocks, looking around every corner for the thunderbolt from God. This life is not intended to be a life where we are constantly going down our checklist of everything in this world that's sinful and avoiding it. This life is intended to be a life where we are delighting in the will of God. Now, certainly that means separating ourselves from sin. But it's intended to be a joy. It's intended to be a delight. Don't play the game with God and sin where you say, how far can I get before God will chase me back to Himself? How far can I push before God's going to start pushing back? That's not a joyful Christian life. The pleasures of flesh for a season are nothing to be compared with the joy of serving Him wholly. Third, never forget God's promises to national Israel. One of the natural outcomes of the modern church's push for Reformed theology is a natural anti-Semitism. It has been often said it is just a few steps from Augustine to Auschwitz. St. Augustine being that old-time theologian who believed national Israel no longer mattered because the church is now Israel, because the church receives the blessings of Israel. Therefore, Israel is really not worthy of anything in our estimation. And so we can discount them. That's making a comeback today through Reformed theology. Proper exegesis of Scripture demands that we, as God's church, recognize that God still has a plan for national Israel. Those who teach that the church is Israel, or those who teach that national Israel is finished in God's plan, are doing what we call eisegesis. 
if you're familiar with the term. Exegesis is when you are drawing truths out of the text. Ex meaning out. Ice is the Greek word into. Eisegesis is when you're taking your ideas and you're imposing them upon the text and creating a theology that way. Those who say the church is Israel, those who say Israel's done and gone and, and finished, they're, they're doing what's called eisegesis. They are imposing their theology upon the text rather than drawing their theology out of the text. Now, politically and spiritually speaking, modern Israel is a mess. As God's people, it is not our duty to support the wicked national policies of modern Israel. Nor is it our duty to support their apostate religious convictions. It is our privilege, however, to pray for the peace of God's people. It is our privilege to pray for their restoration and to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel as God has called us to do. Fourth and finally this evening, never forsake Christ's right to rule. We've talked about it this morning in our Sunday, Sunday hour. We talked about it last week in our Sunday hour that you are Christ's and Christ is God's, that you are Christ's body, soul, and spirit. Never forsake Christ's right to rule in you and never forsake Christ's right to rule on the throne of David. Every believer listening to me today would no doubt appreciate the scriptural reality that Christ's right to rule over the kingdoms of this world is valid. But until that day, may I encourage you to never forsake His right to rule in your heart. So we'll close this evening with Romans chapter 5, verse 19 through 23, which says this. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound but where sin abounded grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned unto death even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus Christ will one day sit on the throne of David we will sit at his feet we will worship at his feet we will see him face to face and the scriptures tell us that when we see him we will be like him but until that day he has the right, by grace, through righteousness, to rule in your heart. Let's allow Him to do it this evening. Let's pray.